Well, good morning. Welcome to Incarnation this morning. Good, good to be in worship with you. Been under the weather all week. I just kind of like the Lord helped me recover right at the very end so I could come and preach to you. Aren't you so lucky? <laughs> Those who exalt themselves. Oh, dang. <laughs> Actually, um, we've been going through uh, what, like a two year long uh, preaching series on the Gospel of Luke. And um, this message that I'm preaching this morning is, is more or less something that I've preached uh, on more than one occasion. I actually knew I'd be preaching this message um, long ago when we started this, uh, this series. Uh, once we got to Luke 18, verses 1 through 17, I knew I'd be preaching this one. And um, uh, one of the reasons why I knew it is not just because I had all my prep done, but it's, it's a message that, that the Lord has really laid on my heart, something that's very, very dear to me, something that's close to me. If I get a chance to preach anything, um, I usually think, hey, I really want to, I really want to preach this. So please pray with me this morning that the Lord will bring a fresh word to our hearts. <clears throat> Father in heaven, we come before you, asking that you would reveal who you are through your Son, our Savior Jesus, and through your Word. Amen. 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 <clears throat> Well, when a Scottish pastor and theologian, T.F. Torrance, was serving as a chaplain in World War II, he had an experience that changed his life forever. He was attending to a dying soldier, barely 20 years old, who had been wounded on the battlefield, and the soldier asked him a question before he died. He said, Padre, is God like Jesus? That's what he wanted to know before he died. Is God like Jesus? Let's think about that for a second. If you were just kind of on stock autopilot response, how would you respond to that question? Is God like Jesus? Years later, this pastor was asked this exact same question by an old lady in his own congregation. He said, Dr. Torrance, do you think God is like Jesus? And the fact that, she was, he, that, that he was asked this by a member of his own congregation, it, it caused uh, Torrance to be kind of deeply troubled. This question of the dying soldier and the old woman suggested that maybe people were believing that there was some kind of other God hidden behind the back of Jesus. It made him wonder, what's causing so many people to disconnect who God is from who Jesus Christ is? And what about us this morning? What comes to your mind when you think about God? A.W. Tozer once wrote in one of my favorite first lines of a book ever. He wrote, what comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. What comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Now, he's not talking about what we'd say we believe, like our own like, personal creed, but instead what we really believe. And we're sort of like acting on spiritual autopilot. So, for example, you're, you're, you're praying all alone, or you're thinking on your bed at night, and sometimes we have these subconscious thoughts about God that affect the way that we pray, right? Or the way that maybe we don't pray. So maybe we think he's just an angry God. You know, and I don't really want to pray to just an angry God. 
Or maybe we think he's just this distant philosophical concept. Or maybe we doubt that he's even there at all. So we can spend a lifetime coming to church, adding to our knowledge of the Bible, and still have these distorted images of God living in our hearts. One time I met a retired missionary lady who told me that um, when she was growing up, uh, her parents always gave her the white glove treatment. You know what the white glove treatment is? That's when you, you clean a house and somebody comes behind you with a white glove and they kind of bring that white glove over all the surfaces and they say, you missed a spot. You missed a spot. So she felt like she was always trying to please her parents, but they were never satisfied. And she realized later on, after she had been on the mission field for 15 years, that that's how she viewed God. But just even bigger, she just viewed God as this never satisfied cosmic judge that was always going behind her and giving her the white glove treatment. Now, to be clear, is God the rightful judge of the world? Yes. yes, yes, right? But that's not all that God is. And somehow that one thought of God had just sort of been blown up in such a way that it distorted everything else that the Word said about who God is. Now, it's worth asking the question, how could she think this way? When she knew the Bible from front to back, she was a missionary out on the field, and she was even leading other people into the Word on a regular basis. Well, I think she had the same problem that many of us have. We all have trouble bridging what we've learned about God with our own autopilot beliefs about what God is really like. It's like there's this chasm, and on one side, it's like we have all our Sunday school knowledge, like the, this missionary lady's Bible Bible knowledge. And on the other side, it's what we really seem to believe in practice, like her unconscious belief that God is this never-satisfied judge. Well, this disconnect is still very common today, is it not? Christians and even non-Christians tend to believe, I think, that Jesus is totally good. Jesus is totally good. He's loving. He's just kind of this like figure of loving kindness and goodness, right? But we tend to make this distinction. We're not so sure about God, right? So often we have this, this false dichotomy between this um, wrathful creator God in the Old Testament. And we say, but it's a good thing that he had this like nice, kind, loving son that comes out in the New Testament, right? Um, but in creating this false dichotomy, we're missing the entire point of the incarnation. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. He's the Word made flesh. In other words, in Jesus, we see the most clearly what the Father is really like. I think if we could just wrap our minds around that one truth, it would be a deeply healing word for us. This truth would go a long way toward you know, dethroning some of these unconscious idols and these fears that in Jesus we see what God is really like. If you'd please turn to the gospel passage for today from Luke 18, verses 1 through 17. Somebody want to call out a page number? 877. 877. Dad, you did such a wonderful job. 
the big towel in this one. <laughs> and uh, Luke 18, 1 through 17, um, these, are, these are three mini stories here. And in these three brief stories, we see Jesus revealing, I think, what God is really like through both his, his words and his actions. And uh, he refutes three unconscious lies that we tend to believe about God. One, that God doesn't care. Two, that God won't accept me if I'm a sinful person. And three, that God is too important for me to bother. So let's begin with the first parable in verses 1 through 8, often called the parable of the persistent widow. And I'll just read these verses aloud for us. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him, saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so that she will not beat down my door by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give them justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? So here Jesus addresses um, this first unconscious lie that we tend to believe about God, that God doesn't care. Believing that God is the kind of God who's apathetic to our struggles, apathetic to our plight, apathetic to our need for justice. In verse 1, Jesus tells us that the purpose of this parable is to show us that we ought always to pray, excuse me, and not lose heart. It's always useful when Jesus tells us the reason why he's telling us the parable, isn't it? So why should we always pray and not lose heart? Jesus answers this question by contrasting two characters. I love that Jesus answers these tough questions by telling stories. So he contrasts this uncaring judge with a caring God. Now this judge is so ridiculously uncaring that um, Jesus actually portrays him talking to himself about how evil he is. <laughs> he says, even though I neither fear God nor regard man... <laughs> I mean, who talks to themselves about their own wickedness like that? Except for, like, cartoon bad guys. <laughs> and people in Jesus' parables. <laughs> but despite the fact that this judge is a really bad dude, he still grants the widow justice. Why? Because he's annoyed. Right? He doesn't care about the vulnerable woman or the injustice of the situation. He doesn't care about God. He just wants her to stop bothering him. <laughs> And here Jesus brings us to the crux of this parable by contrasting this unjust judge with God the Father. And the message is this. If persistence works with such a cruel man, how much more so with such a benevolent God? This earthly judge is hard-hearted, but the judge of the universe, Jesus says, is compassionate. Both the earthly judge and the heavenly judge are in positions of power. They hold authority. They hold people's lives in their hand. But if you're looking for mercy from the earthly judge, you better pester him or twist his arm or something because he's a withholding man. 
And in contrast, Jesus wants us to know that the Father, besides being in a position of power, is nothing like this earthly judge. God actually cares. God wants us to come to him. He wants us to bother him. He wants us to beat down the door. Because, of course, it doesn't bother him. Think about that for a second. The creator of the universe, through Jesus, is giving us the green light to come to him, to pester him, to persistently bring ourselves and our requests before him. He wants it. He likes it. Because God wants a relationship. He wants a relationship with you. And he's hungry for this kind of heart-to-heart interaction. He wants it to be real. Just as any good father is hungry for heart-to-heart connection with their children. Is this the way that we view God? Looking at our second passage, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, Jesus addresses another common lie that we tend to believe about God. That God won't accept me if I'm a sinful person. Right? This is a common lie that we believe about God, whether we're believers or non-believers. This is a, a major reason why people avoid the topic of God altogether. God won't accept me if I'm a sinful person. Well, let's read this parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, starting on verse 9. He also told them this parable to show, uh, excuse me, to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Again, Jesus has given us a hint as to what the point of this parable is about, isn't he? Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So the first character we meet in this parable, right, is the Pharisee. Now the Pharisees were a part of a religious group. They were especially devout. Uh, They were totally devoted to scripture and to fasting and to giving and obeying the letter of the law to the T. And the Pharisees were really like a separational group. Like if you didn't believe what they believed or acted how they acted or, you know, you weren't like civilized enough, They didn't want any part of fellowship with you. And that's what the parable, that's what the the Pharisee in our parable is like, isn't he? Even in his prayers, he's standing alone, it says. And even in his prayers, he's concerned with distancing himself from other people. Do you notice that? He prays this very self-congratulating prayer that doesn't amount to much more than talking to himself about himself. God, I thank thee that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers. You can see him kind of looking around as he's saying this. Or even like that tax collector. <laughs> I fast twice twice a week and I get tithes of all I get. Amen. <laughs> as Beth put it. Just like modern day Pharisees, because they still exist, amen? Yeah. 
This man sees everyone else's sin, but not his own. Right? He sees the reasons why everyone else is unworthy and why he thinks he's worthy. But by contrast, notice the posture of the tax collector. It said he stood far off. He wouldn't even lift his eyes up to heaven, but he beat his breast. It's a picture of penitence, of humility. And then he prays, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, like a common interpretation of this in our day is that like both of these guys just had it wrong in a different way. You know, One of the guys had it wrong because he was too prideful. He had too high of a view of himself. But this you know, tax collector, he had it wrong too. He had too low of a view of himself. He shouldn't have thought of himself as a sinner like that. But that's not what Jesus said. <laughs> Jesus said about the tax collector, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. That is to say, he's the one who went home having things right between he and God. So why is the tax collector received and the Pharisee rejected? Now let's lean into Jesus' distinction here because it's of crucial importance. The main difference between these two men is that the Pharisee came to God with his hands full, right? Full of all the righteous deeds that he thought gave him rights in the presence of the Creator of God. He said, I've done all this stuff, and so you owe me righteousness, right? You owe me a certain standing. I'm owed a certain treatment because I've done my quiet time today. But the tax collector came to God with nothing, with nothing, with just the empty hands of faith, and he threw himself on the mercy of the court. And how about you? Do you try to come to God with your hands full? Saying, you need to love me because look at the things I've done. Or do you say, Lord, have mercy on me and love me because you're good. Yeah. <laughs> I remember when I was uh, doing campus ministry at Florida State. Um, it was my, my third year, the start of my third year, and things got a little complicated because uh, Carissa and I had a baby. And all of a sudden, um, you know, I didn't have like, you know, 70 hours to give to campus ministry a week. And, you know, my, my biggest ministry partner, Carissa, was kind of like, you know, doing all kinds of breastfeeding and all kinds of things. And she was still a student, you know, throughout the day. And, and so we were just both overwhelmed. And at the time, like the ministry had just grown a lot. And so uh, there was all kinds of new things to be done. And all of a sudden, I don't have as much time. We're both super sleep deprived. <laughs> Can I get an amen from any amen. young parents? <laughs> We're both super sleep deprived. And uh, it just felt like, uh, I guess to, to put it in the Bilbo Baggins way, like I was butter scraped over too much bread. <laughs> and um, so I, I just felt like, man, I'm, I, I would come home and... and you know, me and Carissa would, would be in a fight and she would already be sleeping and we hadn't reconciled from earlier and I'd get home and I'm like, I'm a bad campus minister. I wasn't even listening to the students after the meeting tonight. They're like talking. I'm like, mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, I'm a bad campus minister. I'm a bad husband. I haven't even seen my kid today. Um, and I, I mean, uh, I just remember thinking, what am I going to do? Like, what am I going to do? And um, 
somebody must have been the Holy Spirit, <laughs> reminded me that I could still go to God on the basis of what Jesus had done for me, not on the basis of my performance. I mean, I literally remember praying, God, I'm not coming to you because I'm a good husband or I'm a good campus minister or I'm a good dad. Like, I wouldn't even dare to come to you except that you invite me through the shed blood of your son, Jesus. On the basis of his righteousness, not on my performance. And I remember at the time, the gospel became real in a new way for me. Right? And it didn't mean that I wanted to just kind of like abuse that grace and be like, so I'm going to be a sucky dad tomorrow too. <laughs> right? I mean, the, the Lord's kindness leads us to repentance. And just being received by him and, and, and just knowing, this is why you died for me. This is, I'm, I'm, you know, messing up all this stuff, but you're still my savior. It was at this time when God was really bridging my own false ideas about who God is with the picture that we get in Jesus Christ. So often we believe the lie of the Pharisee, don't we? That God only accepts me if I'm impressive. That God wants us to come to him with our perfect performance in life instead of heeding Jesus' call through the tax collector here to come to God in spite our many faults and throw ourselves on his mercy. In our final passage from Luke 18, Jesus addresses another common lie, that God is too important for me to bother. Now, if you notice, all three of these passages highlight God's mercy to someone who is, in, in some sense, powerless. Right? So the widow um, is often forgotten in, in any society, easily exploited. The tax collector, he had money, but, but because... He was a flunky of the state. He had no social currency, right? He was isolated. And in this passage, um, it talks about children who are the most vulnerable people group in any society. So Luke 18, 15 through 17. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked him. But Jesus called to them saying, let the little, excuse me, let the children come to me. And do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. You know, there's this theme going on here, and there's something about being powerless and being aware that we're powerless that puts us in the right position to receive from God. Amen? Amen? But the disciples, they don't understand this yet. Notice how they just try to shoo the children away from him in verse 15. They think they're doing something noble, right? It's like, all right, children, move along. Jesus is an important teacher. He's got things to do, heavenly things. You know? He doesn't have time for all this Mickey Mouse stuff. And I, I think that this is the most critical moment of the entire passage. Because what Jesus' actions challenge us to do is make the connection between what he's just taught about who God is in the previous two parables and what we really think God's like. So whereas the two parables um, were about teaching, 
This last one is about demonstration. Jesus demonstrates what he's been teaching through his actions. So think with me for a minute. Jesus has just finished teaching that God cares about his children's needs and that we can go to God even if we're not impressive. So what if right after saying all this, Jesus saw these little children approaching him, the incarnate word, and he dismissed them? No, leave me alone, children. They're not important enough for me to interact with. I mean, if Jesus would have responded that way, what kind of confidence could you and I have who are mere infants in the sight of God? What kind of confidence could we have in approaching the Father? But of course, Jesus doesn't do that that way, does he? Instead, he rebukes the disciples and says, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belong the kingdom of heaven. Didn't you understand about the widow? Did it not sink in about the tax collector? In this response, Jesus assures us that there's no distinction between what he teaches and who he is. As John Stott puts it, Jesus' actions dramatize his words, and his words interpret his actions. So at first, these three uh, parables, they look like disconnected passages, don't they? But Luke bundles them together in order to illustrate this point, that what we see in Jesus' words and in his person is one consistent image of what God is really like. Remember the soldier's question, Padre, is God like Jesus? Well, the scriptures teach that Jesus Christ is our clearest window into the face of God. As it says in the opening sentences to the book of Hebrews that we heard read a few minutes ago, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Amen. God has revealed himself through the Old Testament. But, he says, in these last days, he has spoken to us even more clearly. How? By his son. This intimate form of communication going on here. And it goes on to say that the son is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. The exact imprint of his nature. So as Christians, we affirm that God has revealed himself through the prophets and in many ways. Amen? But we also believe that Jesus is the pinnacle of God's self-revelation to the world, being himself the exact imprint of God's nature. Or as Colossians 1 says, he's the image of the invisible God. He's the image of the invisible God. So if we're ever asked the question, hey, what's God like? The most substantive and complete answer we can give to that question is to point to Jesus Christ. That's what God is like. How do we know that God loves sinners? Because Jesus Christ came to save sinners and he died on the cross for them. How do we know that God will have time for me? Because he said, let the little children come to me. Let me summarize and begin to draw to a close. Firstly, when these common lies creep into our relationship with God, that God is too important for me to bother, that before we go to God, we need to have our lives in order, 
or that God is just this never-satisfied cosmic judge. When these thoughts invade, we ought to ask ourselves, does this sound like Jesus? Right? Does that sound like Jesus? I mean, he's the litmus test, right? So if we have a friend or family member who feels too dirty with sin or too unimportant to go to God, we can say something like, remember what Jesus said about the tax collector? Or remember what, how, how Jesus received the little children? That's what God is like. You can go to him. And I think the significance of this point uh, simply cannot be exaggerated. Everything we see Jesus do in the Gospels, from his teaching to his manner to who he's tough on, you know, to who he seems to have a, a special weakness and soft heart for, all of it is meant to tell us something about who God is. When you're reading the Gospels, you're looking into the face of the Father. Jesus came to replace all our false, unconscious, sinful, less than glorious ideas about who God is. In John 14, 8 through 9, Philip says to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus answered him, Have I been with you for so long, and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? So first, we look at Jesus to reveal who the Father really is. Second, we look specifically to the cross of Christ to reveal who the Father is. We need to address this false dichotomy we talked about earlier that says that the Creator God is moody and wrathful, but it's a good thing he has this kind, loving son who's willing to die for us. Like, this is a very schizophrenic picture of God, right? Very untrinitarian view. We miss the point that Jesus reveals God and the cross is the pinnacle of that self-revelation. What do the scriptures say? 2 Corinthians 5.19 says that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Hebrews 9.14 says that Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice through the eternal spirit. It's, like, it's almost like the Father and the, Son, the, and the Spirit were involved too. In other words, Jesus isn't acting alone. Our redemption on the cross was the work of the entire Trinity, the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And according to Romans 3.26, the cross showed us that God is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God is both just and the justifier. What does that mean? It means that he's both the one who cares so much about holiness, who cares so much about justice, that when we turn a blind eye to justice, when we, when we treat our neighbors with hate instead of with love, that God's just heart burns within him. There needs to be an accounting for that. But that he's also the justifier. That he's so loving, he so desires to rescue us and not have us be objects of his wrath, that he takes the wrath, he takes our punishment on his own innocent person, suffering and dying in our place through God the Son, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And it's not just that God once upon a time humbled himself and became a servant. What we see in Jesus 
is that before all time, before creation, that God is humble. That God is a servant. The cross is God's nature projected onto a fallen world. That's what it looks like. This is the God we meet in the face of Jesus Christ. In closing, I, I believe that this scripture, through this scripture, God is inviting everyone here to come as a little child today. Everyone here is being invited to say to the Father, have mercy on me, a sinner. Restore my relationship with you through the cross of Jesus. Give me power to live a life of love and beauty and truth. We have prayer teams in the back during communion, and I know they'd love to pray with you. You know, if you want to ask for light into any, you know, God to just shine the light of Jesus Christ into any of our like subconscious um, falsehoods that we that we've started to believe about God, just asking for healing, spiritual healing from that. What comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. But also, maybe there's some people today who say, you know what? I've never came to God with my hands empty. I've always come with my hands full. Or maybe I haven't come because I thought I had to have full hands and I knew my hands were never full enough. So if that's you, I just want to encourage you, you can come to God. Beat down his door like this widow. You know, come to him like the tax collector. Say, I got nothing to bring to the table, but I throw myself on your mercy. Come like these children. Have, have, have your friends in here. Say, all right, all right, you got to come to Jesus. Come on now. <laughs> Follow me. You know, maybe you feel like you don't even have the strength to come to him. You can begin a relationship with the living God this morning. You want to know how that military chaplain answered the wounded soldier on the battlefield? The one who asked Padre, is God like Jesus? He said to him, He's the only God there is. He's the only God there is. The God who has come to us in Jesus, shown us his face, and poured out his love for us as our Savior. And he prayed for the dying man and he commended him to the Lord. Sounds like a pretty important last thought, huh? Let's make it our meditation this morning by faith. Amen? Amen. Amen. Amen.